Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly brought to you by Niche Solutions GB. NZ Brew 10 is the all-in-one eco-friendly cleaning product from Realzyme, available now from Niche Solutions. It's an enzyme-based powdered detergent rather than a traditional caustic-based cleaning solution, and it provides an effective weapon against biofilms and brewery contamination, something you're going to hear all about in this episode of the Hot 4 podcast. Enzibrew is proving popular with brewers because it's an eco-friendly, all-in-one detergent, cutting your costs as it works on biofilms as well as all the organic residues encountered during the production of beer. Enzibrew 10 is absolutely ideal for deep, safe cleaning of filter plates, work coolers and maturation, boiling and fermentation tanks. As a natural non-caustic detergent, it's safe to use alongside other cleaning products such as those which contain chlorine and because it works at much lower temperatures, it's more energy efficient. Make sure you both visit nichesolutionsgb.co.uk and visit them at Stand 99 at BRX coming up at the Liverpool Exhibition Centre where you'll be able to chat to the team about all your cleaning and processing needs. Um, I use these products myself. I think they work a treat. So make sure you connect with Niche Solutions and visit them at Ciba BRX and make sure you visit their website to find out more. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hotforward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hop4 podcast. When I was relatively new to the industry, I remember being sat around a table full of brewers and beer professionals from the local area feeling totally out of my depth on every level. Not only were they well versed in drinking more beer than I was, but it seemed as if their knowledge of brewing was vastly endless in comparison to mine. Talking about amino acids, hop creep and the effect of nitrogen levels on the performance of malting barley during germination was a little more than I could bear. And in a vain attempt to display my prowess, I launched into the conversation with my own story about how I was starting a contract brewery to to focus on sales and the brand because I'd heard that brewing is 90% cleaning and 10% paperwork. Big Mick, a larger-than-life character who managed one of Sheffield's most long-standing microbreweries, quite simply, but definitely not subtly, announced, Kid, you're obviously not doing enough paperwork. While the physical acts of cleaning may be something that occupies much of your time and brew day, I bet some of you are cleaning right now, uh, managing the cleaning regimes, staying on top of health and safety, and preventing bacterial growth and infection should be a brewer's top priority to ensure their beers and brew house remain on top form. I can't begin to tell you some of the cleaning horrors I've experienced over the years before I acquired the correct knowledge and advice on how a cleaning place should be implemented. 
If the advice is out there, which you'll hear from today's episode that it is, make sure you make the most of it. Because as you'll glean from this interview, there's a whole microbiological world out there hanging around in your brew house, ready to play Armageddon on your beers. I think you'll enjoy today's interview with Paul Browning, who is an independent hygiene consultant working with Niche Solutions. Uh, It's quite a long one, this one, but it's full of useful tips. So grab a pen and a pad and take notes. And once again, make sure you thank this week's sponsor, Niche Solutions, by visiting their website, www.nichesolutionsgb.co.uk, and by visiting their stand at BRX. I'm sure they'd love to help you with their range of cleaning and processing aids, uh, which I've used personally and I've always been happy with, so make sure you check them out. And follow us on social media at hot 4 beers and connect with us on LinkedIn. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. And visit hotforward.beer where you can tap into a range of creative and business development services for your brewery and your beer business. We're here to make your beer look as good as it tastes and help you brew up a better business. So knuckle down and keep scrubbing if you're in your brew kettle right now um, as we listen to today's episode with Paul Browning from Freedom Hygiene all about uh, microbiological growth, cleaning and biofilms. Cheers. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Paul Browning to talk about a subject that I know is close to the heart of every brewer, and I would say is at the heart of every brew house, uh, cleaning and microbiology. Hello, welcome to the show. Good morning. Paul, you, you've got an extensive history, both of brewing and the food industry. Can, can you give our listeners a little bit of background as to who you are, what you do, and how you ended up advising different companies on, on food hygiene? Yes, indeed, Nick. Uh, I started uh, in hygiene, basically, when I left school, uh, which was uh, a long while ago, and started off as a microbiologist with the Public Health Laboratory Service. Um, Before moving into industry, first of all, I went to uh, a dairy in the Vale of Beaver called Long Clawson Dairy, where I learnt the art of Stilton cheese making. Uh, We also attended to microbiological issues within the industry at that time, which was quite uh, significant, Um, and then moved uh, into uh, hygiene with uh, the Diversity Corporation uh, back in the 70s and 80s, spent 17 years with them, uh, initially within their brewing division, so that's where I learnt all things to do with brewing and had many a happy hour in Bass at Burton-on-Trent back in the 70s right. and 80s. Um, and then from there, took on a more wider role within diversity in the, in the marketing department, uh, developing products and approaches to uh, not only brewing, but also food manufacturing in the UK and Scandinavia. More recently, uh, back in 95, I set up Pentasol. Uh, we were supplying chemical detergents manufactured in Daventry, to Carlsberg, Tetley, Charles Wells, Green King, as well as some of the family independents like Batemans. Um, And that was sold, as uh, probably many of the listeners will know, to CCL, who then sold that to Zenith, and more recently it's now owned by Diversity. So it seems that my career has gone full circle (laughs) in the last 40 years. Um, Now I act as a consultant to, to Niche, 
in addition to that, I have my own business, which is called uh, Freedom Hygiene. And my main concern with that is the uh, identification of biofilms and the elimination of biofilms within food manufacturing, particularly with reference to Listeria monocytogenes. Right, okay. And you're working with some brewers, like you mentioned, Canon Town, um, Roosters, that was the other one, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, uh, who, who else are you working with at the moment? Uh, we're working with Roosters and, and, and Hamiltons, Neen Valley, Nottingham Brewery, Exeter, Hanlands, and uh, a few more besides. Right, great stuff. So let, let's start with the basics and, and work up from there. So, so t- Total 101 question why is good basic cleaning and hygiene a must for every brewer out there it's because of the the hidden dangers and uh brewers i i tend to call these breweries first generation brewers rather than micro brewers i think micro brewers understates the uh, the, the the business that mm. these are in so i like the term first generation brewers which I actually pinched from the managing director of Everard's before that brewery (laughs) closed down, that was Stephen. And um, whilst they uh, have learnt the art of of brewing, they've had to pick up engineering skills. I think the two most difficult skills that brewers have to come to terms with, and this is where they need help, uh, one is an area that we were talking about, Nick, before we came on air, which is to do with marketing their products, uh, you can brew the best pint in the world, but if you can't sell it to enough customers, you're not going to stay in business. Mm. Um, but my concern is on the hygiene side because most brewers underestimate what hygiene is all about. So what I try to do is not just go in there and sell them a range of chemical products, which is the easy thing to do, but we, we, we try to impart knowledge so that they can understand why they've got to have a really great attitude toward cleaning and not just see it as something that's coming off the bottom line. Yeah. So can you share with us some of the hygiene horrors you've witnessed in the past um, and some of the attitudes behind poor standards in, in breweries like that? Uh, first, with attitude, I think the, the, the worst attitude is where uh, a, a brewer will try to do the cleaning at the lowest possible cost. Uh, without any concern for what impact that might have on on hygiene performance. Um, This manifests itself in using detergents under strength. This is one of the most commonest things that I find. Mm. Uh, Caustic detergent to be effective, rule of thumb says that for the hot side of the brewery, you want to be working at 2% as caustic soda. Um, which means if you're using a 33% caustic solution, which most of them are used by first-generation brewers, you need 6% volume-volume mm. to give you 2%. And on the cold side, rule of thumb again, a minimum of 3% product to give you 1% as NaOH. And very often we find, even in really hard water areas, brewers will be using those detergents at a far less concentration And they may say, well, we appear to be getting the place clean. But also within the caustic uh, product uh, as supplied by uh, the uh, reputable uh, detergent manufacturers, uh, there are other additives. The the biggest one, of course, is is, is called a keelant or a sequestrant or, or a water softening agent. And that's designed to prevent hard water precipitating out onto vessel surfaces. Now, if that happens 
and and it happens uh, more more often than not in hard water areas you'll see a scale developing in the fermenter or the bbt or the conditioning tank and that is when we have a real problem and it's usually due to the fact that detergents have been used under strength or they've used a detergent which is just not really a detergent it's just a blend of caustic it's just caustic soda uh, diluted with water. So we've got to make sure that the caustic detergents that are used are fit for purpose. So some of the horrors that we find is is beer stone and scale. Uh, beer stone and scale to our eyes looks like a thin film, but to brewery spoilage organisms like Acetobacter, lactic acid bacteria, Zymomonas or Pediococcus or wild yeasts, some of these are so small that if we were to take 125,000 organisms and if we could ask them to stay still long enough and line up on a one-inch line, we'd get 125,000 single organisms on that line. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that really blows the mind away because we can't perceive that. We can't imagine what that looks like. So what we've got to understand that if we have any minute traces of scale particularly on the cold side, to us it's a thin film. To be a spoilage organisms, it's a high-rise block of flats. Right. And they will hide within that high-rise block of flats the same way that we do. We like to feel secure, we like to feel warm, so we have four walls and a roof above our heads. And this is exactly what the beer spoilage organisms uh, are designed to do. They will quickly find areas within the brewery that are not spotlessly clean and they will inhabit those areas and that's where the brewer needs to look out so the scale problem is probably the number one enemy of the brewer and the brewer not understanding the implications and the seriousness of that the second thing that we're finding um it really is uh, a bit of a phantom from a point of view of of, of cost and, and that's to do with peracetic acid. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that peracetic acid is the finest terminal disinfectant, not only for breweries, but for food manufacturers mm. as well. And uh, I was around when it was first introduced into Bassett Burton back in the 70s. Uh, I was working for Diversity at that time, and it was being supplied by a company up in Warrington called Interox. And there was a big, big resistance to using peracetic acid because of its pungent and uh, and choking kind of uh, effect that it had if you got your nose or your mouth too close to it. Now, in those days, it was 15%, and we quickly learned that lesson, and uh, we started to use 5%, and we got overall the... Uh, uh, the the resistance in terms of that it's not a danger to health if it's used correctly and of course now it's used all over the world but the number of times when I say to the brewer you're using paracetic acid what strength are you using it at mostly they know and they will have it recorded that they're using it at a certain concentration invariably it's far too high one uh, percent sometimes as high as two percent and that's not going to give you a, a better kill rate. It's certainly going to cost you more money. And peracetic acid is probably the most expensive product that a brewer will use to do with uh, disinfection and cleaning. 
And so we say, well, perhaps you should bring that down to 0.25 to 0.5% volume, volume. That will give you plenty of PPMs of paracetic acid to do an effective kill. Yeah. I mean, just on that um, paracetic acid thing, (laughs) how man's guilty there'd be times where it's just being like, (laughs) splash it in. Um, I mean, what are some of the other effects if you use at a higher dosage? Well, it's an interesting point that Nick, because recently we've we've been approached by a brewer who had, had read somewhere or thought he'd read somewhere that uh, if paracetic acid is used too strong, that the oxygen can start to oxidise the beer and give you off flavours. Mm. Now, in theory, uh, I, c- I can see that, um, but if used at the correct concentration. Um, the paracetic acid dissociates, as we all know, into acetic acid and uh, a little bit of oxygen. But these are in such minute traces that they're probably not exceeding the amount that's already in the beer in the first place. So if it's used correctly, it's not a problem. Um, I've yet to investigate what happens if you use paracetic acid way above the recommended strength. There may be, and I say maybe, and this is a personal, not a professional opinion, there may be a propensity for the uh, dissociated oxygen to oxidise the beer to an extent that you may pick up a taint. Right. What are the benefits of investing in cleaning regimes and to what extent should a brewer go to when putting a CIP programme in place? Um there are a number of things and you've you've really got to be a little bit of uh, an engineer you've got to be a little bit of a chemist a little bit of a microbiologist but um, if the brewer is dealing with a reputable supplier then that supplier should be able to provide you with this kind of support Uh, but the first thing that we've got to do and and we i'm certainly finding within the some of the smaller breweries probably five to ten barrels where they've probably inherited a system that they don't know the uh, origins of. And one of the commonest problems is to find that the spray device in the fermenter, for example, uh, doesn't match the flow characteristics of the CIP pump. Mm. And again, uh, brewers will probably are ignorant. And let me just explain my definition of the word ignorant uh, is not stupid. Ignorant means simply uh, lacking knowledge. And and if if the brewer doesn't have a knowledge that you've got low pressure, high volume spray balls that need a certain specification of CIP delivery pump. On the other hand, if they've got a high pressure, low volume uh, spray device in in the vessel, they'll need a completely different flow characteristic from the pump. So they, they've got to check first of all that the hydraulics, shall we say, of the CIP system uh, is in harmony, that the spray ball matches the the pump. That's the first thing to do. The second thing to do with any CIP system is to make sure that uh, the diameter of the piping uh, matches the diameter of any uh, beer pipes, any beer lines, uh, because if we have any uh, reduction in diameter or any increase in diameter, uh, we will get flow rates which are either increased or decreased and could affect the cleaning, particularly of pipework. So we need to look at the flow rate and we need to make sure that we have turbulent flow, Mm. particularly going down a pipe. If we have laminar flow, which is moving at a far slower rate, that is not sufficient to scour off any yeast deposits that we may have lurking within the piping system. So having looked at the engineering, having had a look at, uh, oh, just before we move off engineering, also to check the CIP system doesn't have any dead legs. 
uh, and these usually are uh, pieces of pipework that are coming out at right angles to the main flow uh, with a blank cap on. Not so prevalent in first generation brewers, but in some of the um, family independents, some of the older Victorian breweries where pieces have been added on and pieces have been taken out over the years, it's not unusual to see a lot of dead legs which can uh, which will not get clean during CIP and which will start to build up uh, stagnant water and allow the growth of uh, wild yeasts, beer spoilage organisms, probably en- en- encapsulated in a biofilm, which then makes it impossible to remove. So once we've looked at that, we need to look at the timing of the CIP. We need to look at the timing of the pre-rinse, the detergent wash and the intermediate rinse and the terminal disinfection. And it's really trial and error. And starting from scratch, I would encourage uh, that the brewer uh, starts to do a pre-rinse and times that pre-rinse. And let's say nominally starts off with a one minute pre-rinse and then scavenge all that pre-rinse water back down the drain and then do a second one minute pre-rinse. These are called burst rinses and they're far more effective than having a continuous, let's say, three, four or five minute rinse. Mm. During that, um, he needs to put his head or she needs to put her head inside the vessel uh, when the pump switched off to make sure that we don't have any building up of liquor inside the cone, for example, of an FV. Because if we don't have um, uh, the spray device spraying onto the stainless steel surface, if it's just hitting a pond of water or detergent in the centre of the fermenter, that area that is covered or immersed in solution will not be cleaned adequately. So let's say three one-minute burst rinses with a pause between each rinse, then move on to the detergent cycle. Three parameters to check there, Nick. One is, are we using the detergent at the right strength? Secondly, are we using detergent at the right temperature? And thirdly, are we circulating it for the right amount of time? So for dilution, um, they should follow the manufacturer's recommendation. So if we're talking about a 33% caustic solution in its concentrated form, then 3% of that will give... Um, a 1% caustic solution, Mm. which is ideal for FVs. Um, So it's necessary to make sure that we know the volume of water in the FV or in the CIP tank to which the caustic is being added so that we can calculate, yeah, that is the right dilution. Um, But particularly if the brewery is looking for BRC or SOLSA or SIBA accreditation, I would also suggest the use of test kits Now, it's been made very simple these days because you can get test kits from the detergent supplier. Uh, uh, They they just drop a bottles and providing you can see a colour change, usually from colourless to red or red to colourless, depending on whether you're titrating acid or caustic. And uh, you can count the number of drops. You can then quickly calculate what the strength of detergent is. Now, that's particularly useful if you want to know how much detergent is being used per clean because you can start off with, let's say, a 1% caustic solution, and after the first clean, if it's only dropped to 0.9%, and that detergent solution looks particularly clean still, then I would encourage brewers to save that and use it again. See, in the larger breweries, they don't throw their caustic detergent away. They will have a big 
usually something between five and 10,000 litre dilute detergent tank, which they use probably for about four weeks before they will dump that and make it up again. Mm. Uh, so detergent dilution is very, very critical, particularly if we have hard water, because remember what I said earlier, that it's not just the right caustic concentration that we're looking at here. We've got to have enough keelant or sequestrant in that dilution to bind up any hard water salts so that they don't precipitate onto the uh, stainless steel surface and uh, allow the build-up of scale and, and give um, good residential dwelling to beer spoilage organisms. So that's concentration. Uh, and to do with time, um, most brewers get this about right. I would say that on the hot side of the brewery for the wort kettle or the copper, uh, we should be looking at up to an hour to, to clean that effectively if all the other parameters are, are, are satisfactory. On the cold side, FVs, BBTs, CTs, again, if all the other parameters are correct, then 20 to 30 minutes should be more than more than enough. Yeah. So when it comes to vessels in particular, um, because obviously, as, as you've been on travels and I've been on mine, you, you see all kinds of different breweries, everything from really nice stainless steel, shiny uni tanks to... The other extreme, which I would imagine some of our listeners will be able to identify to, which is like high-density polyethylene fermenters, you know, effectively big plastic buckets. <laughs> um, now, we all know one cleans better than the other. So if, if anyone's listened to this and they are in a situation where actually they're, they're using big plastic FVs, like what are some of the dangers that you'll get with those as far as cleaning is concerned that you won't get with stainless steel and, and what kind of things can they do to overcome... Uh, the challenges that they'll face on a microbiological level. Okay, uh, I think maybe some of your listeners won't be uh, very happy with the answer I'm going to give you to that, Nick. Uh, but I'm speaking from experience, and um, I'll, I'll leave this brewery anonymous. It's no longer in business. Uh, but when it was in business, uh, I, I was visiting this particular brewery uh, on several occasions, and they were brewing, um, they were fermenting, in second-hand plastic IBCs. Um, They had a very good cleaning regime. Um, They had a pressure, uh, a high-pressure spray device, uh, which they put into the top of the IBC uh, with a dummy manway door, and they gave it a thorough wash with a caustic detergent at the right concentration. They rinsed and then they would give a good parasitic acid disinfection. They were doing all of the cleaning uh, impeccably well. But what they failed to realise was twofold. The first thing was that the inside of any IBC, um, which is blow moulded, is not going to look, under the microscope, very smooth. And we found by spraying on a biofilm and identification solution. Now, this is, if, for, for the listeners who are not aware of this, you, you, you can get uh, at a fairly um, low cost um, solutions which you can spray onto a surface to see if it's microbiologically clean. Um, the larger brewers will be using ATP, which is fine. A lot of the smaller brewers can't can't afford or don't think they can afford one of those. But it, it, that doesn't matter. That I don't think that is 
it, it, it necessarily means that you can't test if a, if, if a surface is not microbiologically clean. You can spray this stuff on and if there is a colour change, um, it indicates that the surface isn't clean. And, and the cost of that per test is about a third of the cost of ATP. And there's no capital outlay as there is with an ATP machine, which mm. can cost anything from a £1,000 upwards. And when we applied this solution to the inside of the IBC after cleaning, uh, we rapidly found that we had biofilms growing with inside the fermenter. And yet the brewer was doing everything correctly in terms of a cleaning program. So had that been a stainless steel uh, fermenter, um, he wouldn't have had that problem. But the, the problem with biofilms is that they will grow particularly on rougher surfaces. They will find all the indentations, all the scratches, all the, uh, shall we say, deformities, um, so that any areas which are not totally smooth will harbour bacterial infection. Getting back to what I said earlier, that if you put 125,000 biosporology organisms in a line, on a one-inch line, mm. um, that, that's, that's the number that you would get. So if we've got scratches or crevices through blow moulding in a plastic container, to us it might just feel like a scratch on the surface or a slight indentation. To these microorganisms, it's equivalent to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> And, and what we've got to do, what we've got to do as, as, as brewers and as owners and, and uh, is, is to start looking at cleaning through the eyes of um, the, the bacteria, through the eyes of a microbiologist. And like many smaller brewers won't have a microbiologist on board again, uh, please rely on your detergent manufacturer to give you that support which they will have. So ju just touching on that, this is a, I'm shooting from the hip, this question. Um, what about plastic casks? Because obviously when a lot of first generation brewers start up, you know, it's, it's metal casks are a huge capital expenditure, whereas plastic ones, obviously they're cheaper. I presume the same principles apply if they get scratched on the inside. Like should brewers be using pl plastic casks? Or? Oh, that's a good, a good question. Um, I, I've, I've been around long enough to, to have had the challenge back in the 70s of aluminium casks. And in those days, the problem with aluminium casks was that inside we had a very smooth surface, uh, but you couldn't clean them uh, apart from things that were neutral. Because if you use caustic or caustic and hypo, or if you disinfected them with peracetic acid, you're going to corrode the aluminium. Uh, and, and this is exactly what happened. So we had a huge population of aluminium casks back in the 70s and 80s, particularly used by the big brewers, by, by the Basses, by the Whitbreads and the Allied breweries. And there, there were millions of uh, aluminium casks in circulation, uh, which were corroded and corroded to an extent that they provided niches for bacteria to grow. And it was a catch-22. You, you couldn't clean them. Mm. So the, the situation just got worse and worse. Now that's well documented. Then we get into the uh, into, into the area that again that, that I was in back back in those days uh, that some of the bigger brewers still had coopers. They still had wooden casks, and and that provided a whole new challenge. And we had to do all sorts of tests with wooden casks to see what we could and could not clean. 
because the chances are by putting in a corrosive chemical into a wooden cask, it's going to absorb some of that chemical. It's not going to be rinsed out afterwards and it's going to start to soften the lignin in the wood and make the wood soft, so totally unfit for purpose. I think the challenges today are far less serious with cask washing, Nick, to be quite honest with you. And I think the plastic casks which are in circulation, because they are made specifically for that purpose. The example I gave you with the plastic IBC with the brewer that didn't know that he got infection in there uh, was simply because that IBC was meant for one trip and then return it and recycle it or throw it away. It wasn't meant for brewing. Mm. One thing I failed to mention about that, of course, the other thing that you don't know is that that IBC that they were using was probably not fit for a food-grade operation. And so chemicals, particularly hypochlorite, could leach out certain things into the beer. Possibility of off-taints, but the biggest possibility is going to start degradation of the plastic itself because it's starting to leach out plasticizers, it's starting to soften up the surface of the IBC and rendering it more susceptible to bacterial infection. But moving on to casks, I've not had a lot of experience comparing the efficacy of cleaning stainless versus plastic casks, but I would suspect that the plastic casks that I've seen that are in circulation are certainly fit for purpose. Um, Again, I think we need to have a clear indication as to what can and cannot be used in a chemical sense in those plastic casts. We need to make sure that uh, if we use chlorine, for example, in the chlorine caustic mix, that that chlorine isn't going to leach out something from the cask which is going to affect the durability and the robustness of that cask. Again, giving you an example that's... uh, not radically different from that, that there was a problem many years ago of using certain beer line cleaners in the retail trade, which had not been thoroughly investigated, uh, or, or what had not been thoroughly investigated really was not the chemical, but the plastics being used for beer lines. And it was found that chlorine rapidly leached out plasticizers in beer lines, and those beer lines collapsed. So what you had instead of a tube was a tape. Right. And, and that particularly on on some of the bigger, bigger installations, was a very costly lesson to learn. Now we know what chlorine will do to beer lines. We use materials of construction which are resistant to those chemicals. Yeah. Before we look at uh, detergents and and, um, what the different detergents do and and biofilms, which I know is a um, special subject for you, um, just touching upon the cast thing and the... Uh, particularly like you were saying with the wood not that there are many brewers out there using Cooper's barrels and things these days but say a brewer um, is you know they're wrecking their beer from a a vessel into a cask or some other container and it's not completely free of like caustic for example like firstly what checks should they be doing to ensure that that doesn't happen and then secondly if it hits the fan and it transpires that they'd not done a rinsed all that caustic off and it was above tolerance limits and again this is something that i hope every brewer listening should have in their HACCP plan um but th- what, what then what what should they do well prevention is, is is certainly better than cure here um because sometimes there isn't a cure apart from throwing beer away which we don't want to do uh again uh my observations within cask washing is that um a lot of the programs that I see have not been thought through uh, quite carefully enough. So what we recommend 
is that first of all we make sure that we're using a chemical which is uh, which is uh, which can be used uh, for cask washing uh, and, and what I mean by that is by reference to the cask washer itself one of the things that we're coming across not so much on cask washers although it has been seen more likely to happen on canning machines is that the materials of construction of packaging equipment very often will contain seals uh, impellers materials of construction that are not resistant to corrosive chemicals. But on a cask washing programme, what the brewer needs to do is to make up a solution of detergent. Once, once he's determined that is the right detergent for the job, uh, that will either be a sequestered caustic detergent, which I would recommend being used at um, a minimum of uh, 3% volume volume. It could be a caustic hypomix, which we use at 3% volume volume. Uh, and once he's made up that dilution, he needs to check the dilution with the test kit to make sure that we're working uh, 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 on the first cask at the right concentration. But then I've seen many occasions, Nick, that a brewer then clean a population of up to 50 casks w without checking that detergent strength. And by the time we get to the end of 50 casks, the chances are that there is nothing left mm. to clean. So what we're suggesting is that um, the the the, the, the uh, cask washing operator um, after ten casks checks the detergent strength with a simple dropper test kit. It'll take him no more than a minute or two, uh, and then from that he can determine whether he needs to add any more at that stage. And by building up a profile of the rate of degradation of the cask washing detergent, he can then say that for any population of fifty casks, he maybe needs to add. X mils to the dilute detergent tank after 10, 20, 30 and 40 casks. And once he's done that, he doesn't have to then check that every time. But if there are any changes made uh, to the cask washing machine uh, or to the casks themselves or an increase in the number of casks that are being cleaned, he will need to calibrate that again using the dropper test kit. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing to do is to see how much detergent is being used up by the fact that we're washing a cask. Most of the dilution, of course, is caused by rinse water getting back into the dilute detergent tank. So he may need to check out the mechanical integrity of the cask washing machine itself and see if there are any, uh, um, any reasons why the detergent is being unnecessarily diluted because of poor design or poor engineering and perhaps for a nominal cost, that can be engineered out of the cask washing machine. Yeah. Just while we're looking at uh, packaging lines, because you, you mentioned about canning lines there, a, a question I did have was um, a, a lot of brewers these days, with the with the move towards putting their beer in cans, um, are, obviously canning lines are expensive. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge outlay for a lot of brewers and, and it, you just can't afford it. Therefore, they get mobile canners in to come do the job for them. Now, um, so you know you hear mixed reviews about some of these mobile canners some are like yeah they're great they swear by them always do a good job and then others you hear like no no it went really bad and so on um when getting a third party in to package your beers what steps can you take to ensure that their cips are sufficient enough so that you don't put your beer in jeopardy because you, you know you can spend a lot of time creating that beer and fermenting it and make sure you've done everything you can possibly do to make sure you know with the power that you have to control um that everything's clean and as it should be but then you get somebody else in and 
you know, it might not the equipment might not be cleaned properly. Like, what what can you do to ensure without without pissing anyone off and being like, you know, is your machine clean? Because I'm sure they will be like, yeah, well, of course it is. You know, uh, we're professionals. But like, what can you do just to just so you got peace of mind that actually their machinery is clean? I, I think because of the significance of getting this wrong could be very very costly. Um, I think you've got to ask questions uh, and, and, and at the risk of pissing them off, as you put it. Um, I mean, that's up to them. If they want to take that kind of attitude to the questions we ask of them, then maybe it's not the kind of company that we should be, that we should be working with. But I think a sensible approach um, that once uh, a brewery is doing so well uh, that they want to bring in a contract canning company. I, I just want to say something from a, a personal viewpoint on this. Um, I was brought up by my dad, um, and this will be back, back in the 1960s, um, on home ales, Nottingham, Best Bitter. And in the pub in those days, you had a choice of Best Bitter and Mild. That was it, or, or, or Guinness, of course. And they were the three draft ales. We've now, thanks to the first generation brewing revolution we've got some of the tastiest beers and some of the most attractive packaging uh, that I've seen and uh, I am now sold um, on on these new particularly the American hopped um, IPAs um, and I, I'm in love with the taste I think it's absolutely fantastic so to all all those brewers out there who are producing these cans of absolute nectar congratulations keep it up uh, but the other thing which you might find quite amusing, uh, particularly this time of the year when we uh, are buying daffodils from Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's, that the can designs are of such interest and are so artistic that we've started to put daffodils in cans. Once we've drunk the beer, we save the cans. Oh, right, yeah. And we're <laughs> using them as ornaments, uh, as a preference to a plain glass vase which is what we've used in the past so uh, I, that's just an aside um, but I, I think if there is contemplation that we're going to do contract canning um, then I would suggest that you you do a survey that you pick maybe uh, two or three and see how they operate ask them the direct question how do you clean this and if you can't get a straight answer, I'd be very, very loath to deal with them. Uh, and also ask for references from other brewers who've used them. Mm. But, but please don't be frightened uh, to, to ask the question, how do you clean? And, uh, and when we say, how do you clean? We want it chapter and verse. What are you using to clean it with? How do you check the strength? What strength? What temperature? What time? How often is it cleaned? Um, because we just don't know unless they unless they tell us. Yeah, I mean, I talked to one brewer um, back in the last year, I think it was, who they basically bought a canning line because they had someone in, and they said although you know that although they did a good job, as far as they were concerned with their titration kit, it was just like it wasn't clean enough for them, so they would have to say, "I want you to clean it again," you know. Um, and in the end, they were just like, "It's just easy for us to to have that control in house, where we're happy with it all the time." So, um, you, you, I mean, you talked about uh, all these different detergents, but I mean, how how do the various detergents work, and what should a brewer be looking for when it comes to choosing the right detergent for their brew house? I think the 
the selection of detergents has, has, has never been so easy for not just brewers, but those involved in, in any food and beverage manufacturing process. It, it, it's never been easier because detergent manufacturers now uh, are so enlightened uh, about their products that they're happy to share that information with the brewer and to help him with the selection. But it's always good to have some knowledge uh, just to make sure that the uh, recommendations that you're being given um, are the best. Um, for example, I'll, one of the, one of the uh, pitfalls, uh, I'm going back again probably about 30 years, one of the pitfalls um, was when certain detergent manufacturers started to sell their, their products by, by kilo weight. Uh, it was a liquid. And it, it was in what looked like a 25 litre drum, but in fact it was a 30 kilo container and the price was quoted in, in kilos mm-hmm. and, not, and not pounds and pennies, uh, sorry, and not litres. So comparing it to uh, another product uh, that was being priced up by the litre, um, the price per kilo uh, price looked look cheaper, but when you work out the SG or the s- specific gravity of the detergent, and you brought them both back to price per litre or price per kilo, then you're able to see which is the most cost effective. So the lesson there to the brewer, to the uninitiated brewer, is that if he has been quoted a price for a caustic detergent per kilo, and his current product is being supplied, and he's being invoiced cost per litre, he needs to bring them both into a kilo price or a litre price. And that's just a question of using the SG to divide or multiply the figure to give you a like-for-like comparison. So from a financial point of view, that's the only check really that needs needs checking out. Um, from a point of view of the chemistry of what's being offered, um, I would tend to go for a 30 to 33% solution of caustic detergent. It is more cost-effective to go for 44%, which is another common uh, concentration. The three common concentrations for caustic detergents supplied by all of the manufacturers will be 25, 33, and 44%. So just a word on those. Um, 44%, okay if you are a large brewer where perhaps you're taking IBCs or bulk detergents into a heated tank. But bear in mind that 44% caustic will start to freeze around 10 degrees. Mm. And we've had problems where we've supplied 44% caustic products uh, up to some of the breweries up in the north of England and Scotland. And in the early autumn, they've had problems getting the product out of the drum. It's not been naught degrees as in frost and freezing temperatures, but at lower temperatures... Uh, the product starts to thicken up and freeze well above 0 degrees centigrade. 33% caustic product, um, that will start to freeze up around about 5 or 6 degrees. It will start to thicken up. Uh, so that needs to be stored indoors uh, and, and, and kept above those temperatures. 25% caustic, um, the least cost-effective, because 75% of it, by inference, is water, and 25% is caustic. But there are some special occasions where 
uh, a more dilute version is is, is applicable, uh, particularly if the additives going into the 25% caustic uh, are not um, are not stable in, in a higher concentration. But to all intents and purposes, I would recommend that 99% of the time the brewer will be looking for a 33% caustic. He needs to ask uh, what kind of level of keelant is in the is in the product. He needs to make the supplier aware of the water hardness, and particularly if he's got a water analysis, the figure that we want to see is the total water hardness in ppms or milligrams per litre of calcium carbonate. And from that, the detergent supplier can say, yep, this is the product that you want. It's 33% caustic. It's got a keelant or sequestrant system within which at the recommended dilution of, shall we say, 3% volume volume will, will handle that level of water hardness. And what about some of the other chemicals? I mean, obviously we talked about paracetic acid, but are, are there any other uh, chemicals and things we need to be having in our brew house to make sure things are clean and yes. on track? Okay. Yes, Nick, good question. Um, the mainstay, the, the, the core product, will be a, a caustic detergent. Some brewers prefer to use caustic and hypochlorite blend. I'm in favour of using those products because hypochlorite, uh, even in a low concentration, is great at oxidising, which means it removes organic soils from the malt, the yeast or the hops very, very quickly, quicker than caustic detergent. It also means that you can use a lower concentration of caustic. Um, So you've got a caustic hypochlorite blend. Um, You wouldn't use that at 80 degrees. 80 degrees is the optimum temperature for caustic CIP. It won't work any better above 80 degrees and it will work less well below 80 degrees. So, well, to be precise, 82 degrees is the optimum temperature for caustic CIP. For a caustic hypo blend, if we use those temperatures, the hypo would flash off. Yes. So we need to drop the temperature to no more than 50 degrees for a caustic hypo blend. The third um, detergent in the hygiene armory within the brewery would be to have... Uh, a phosphoric nitric acid blend. Um, these are quite commonly used for descaling when a beer stone or hard water scale appears usually on the cold side of the brewery. Now, for many, many years, uh, I worked um, for a long time with, uh, with Everards in, 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 in Leicester. Um, that, that brewery is no longer there, of course, but uh, their policy, which was a good one, I always recommend this to every brewer that I meet, and their policy was to use caustic for about four weeks non-stop, and then on the fifth week to spend a week cleaning all the cold side of the brewery with an acid detergent before the scale emerged or before our eyes could perceive the scale because, you see, scale starts to build up as an invisible layer before we can see it. Mm. And it's at that stage we want to hit it on the head. So I would say that to have uh, a phosphoric nitric acid blend in the hygiene, in the chemical store, and to use that, shall we say, um, every optimally every fifth clean, um, it will vary from brewer to brewer, and you would use that at about 3% volume. Volume, you can use it ambient, but equally you could use it up to 60 or 70 degrees for 20 to 30 minutes, the same kind of time as you would use the caustic. 
and use that uh, for a week. That will polish up any scale from the stainless steel surfaces, including the pipework and the valves, and then go back onto the caustic or the caustic hypo blend. So the, the, the only other thing that I want to mention, um, we've dealt with paracetic acid, I think. Um, before paracetic acid came on the scene, we had stuff that contained quaternary ammonium compounds or QACs or affectionately called quats uh, until brewers realised that any traces of that left in the beer completely flattened the head. It destroyed any amount of head retention. Um, there are other disinfectants about, but I would recommend only paracetic acid. Okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room because we're going through all this cleaning to avoid beer spoilage organisms uh, what sort of organisms should we fear and what are the effects not just on our beer but on our brew house uh, when, when we find them and what can we do to specifically recognize them and eliminate them I don't think we can do a great deal to specifically identify them unless we're going to go to the trouble of sending them away to uh, a micro testing laboratory which is uh, probably not going to be cheap um, we, we know that uh, we, we've got wild yeasts can be a problem um, lactic acid bacteria acetobacteria pediococcus and zymomonas these are the ones that spring to mind and these have been well documented well documented for many many years now through work done by the larger brewers who wanted to find out what are the organisms that are not friendly towards our beer? What, are the, what, what, what bacteria are going to cause us problems if we have them in any numbers? Um, I, I honestly don't think that it's necessary for, for, for brewers to particularly know whether they have them or not. But I would say this, that they need to have the viewpoint that these kind of organisms are going to be knocking around the brewery. And it's a question of control. We can't control them coming in because they're, they're ubiquitous. Um, we've also got the added problem of waterborne organisms like Pseudomonas, which is not a beer spoilage organism as such, uh, but it's a tremendous biofilm producer. It's probably, uh, along with Staphylococcus, one of the most profuse biofilm producers that you can get. And if you grow Pseudomonas on an agar plate, you see the slime, it's millimetres thick, mm. it's horrendous. And there is a lot of hosting going on here. So, for example, in the food industry, the biggest problem now is having Pseudomonas fluorescence biofilms and in those biofilms, Listeria monocytogenes, which is a pathogen and recently killed seven patients up in the Liverpool and Manchester hospitals after they ate sandwiches, chicken sandwiches, infected with Listeria mono. And, and what we find is that Listeria whilst it will produce a sparse biofilm much prefers to find a biofilm already formed by pseudomonas and it will burrow its way into the bottom and multiply quite readily so i think rather than get too preoccupied with the kind of spoilage organisms which may be identified um, I, I think the lesson here is to keep 
a very, very robust hygiene program in place at all times, to have a great attitude toward cleaning, and to make sure that we do something which I don't think we mentioned earlier, and, and that is to have an environmental cleaning program in place as well. Brewers will spend a lot of time and a lot of money making sure that the internal surfaces, the wort and beer contact surfaces, are perfectly clean. But you see, the infection is not going to come from there. The source is not going to come from there. The source is going to come from off the shoes as we walk in off the street. It's going to come in through the, hot, through the liquor supply, from the borehole or from the mains. And it's going to be growing in the drains without any question and on the floors. And if we look up the side of the walls and we'll see mould, black mould growing, particularly where we've got lots of condensation. These are the things to look at, which I think are more important than identifying what specific organisms that we have. So for environmental cleaning, for example, Nick, I would recommend that we use a foam cleaning program where we foam uh, a caustic hypo blend uh, to remove mould, to break down biofilms on the floors and drains, and I think this should be a regular weekly exercise, and uh, also to, to, to foam clean the outside of vessels because sometimes they look unclean and it doesn't occur to the brewer that we can have biofilms growing on there and those biofilms then can snap off, can break off, can be rinsed off and could find their way to the manway door or to one of the outlets. Mm. So um, I think that's, that's the best advice I can give. If there is a willingness and if there's money to spend to identify what organisms are knocking around, then by all means do it. But I think it's an academic exercise. I think if we work on the principles outlined in this in this particular interview, um, I don't think we need to worry too much about beer spoilage. Yeah. But I want to start talking to you about biofilms and one of the areas of infection, the key area for infection the focal point for infection which gets overlooked time and time again in even the biggest breweries or in the biggest food manufacturing plants and I spend a lot of time with some of the the, the UK's largest food manufacturers and sometimes floors and drains get overlooked and the brewer can be doing everything correct with his CIP with his hand cleaning with his soap baths He's impeccable, he's got a very robust hygiene programme. But when we start to check the floors and the drains, we find that they're absolutely coated in biofilms which are invisible to the eye, and it's those biofilms which will harbour those beer spoilage organisms that I mentioned earlier. Now, the other thing to notice is that the distance between the fermenting vessel outlet the one at the bottom of the cone and the one above the cone are so close to the floor and nine times out of ten those outlets are unprotected there isn't a blank end that's been screwed on so that simply by walking across the floor and, and particularly by hosing the floor or scrubbing the floor and particularly if we're using a high pressure washer we can break up minute particles of biofilm and they, they're going to enter into the outlet at the bottom of the cone very, very easily because we're talking about centimetres above the floor. Mm. So let, let, let's just go back a, a step about biofilms. I wanted to come on to this. So for, firstly, what are they? Uh, and secondly, why are they such a complex problem to encounter in your brewery? I mean, you've talked a little bit about 
um, them them spreading easily. And I even saw a Facebook post. Uh, I think it was just yesterday at the time of recording this, saying that you shouldn't use um, hand dryers like the you know the air like Dyson type ones um, that we we often find in public toilets because actually in your brewery and brewery tap room basically people not washing their hands properly and they can bring out all kinds of bacteria what are biofilms okay um i just want to mention something uh, here that you mentioned the uh, the infamous hand dryer um and there's absolutely no doubt that uh, mr dyson is an absolute genius uh, with what he's uh, invented i mean we've got one of his vacuum cleaners back home um but uh, unfortunately, um, what we're seeing with the hand dryers, not just with the Dyson one, but with any uh, high velocity hand dryer, and I've tested literally hundreds of these over the last 12 months, every one has got profuse amounts of biofilm. And if you look at the design of um, a hand dryer, it's manufactured in two halves. And it's stuck together so that if you look um, at the bit where you put your hand into the chamber, if you look where your fingernails are, they're millimetres above a join. And that's where biofilms love to grow, where two things come together and they can find a li- what appears to us to be a little gap. As I said earlier to them, that's a Grand Canyon. And they can leap in there and they can hide and produce biofilms as, uh, uh, all day long. You'll also find that the water splashing off uh, from the hand dryer onto the wall and onto the floor is also going to create lots of biofilm. Uh, I have stopped using hand dryers in motorway services and I will either let my hands dry by themselves or I'll take my own towel in and, and dry my hands myself. And particularly ladies, if you have long fingernails and, and those fingernails dip to the bottom of that hand dryer, go and scrub your nails because they're going to be highly infected. And, and, and this is something which has only just recently been observed. And I spend a lot of time going into the food industry, and it's surprising how many of these hand dryers we find in the areas where you wash your hands before going into a high-risk food department. So the last thing you do is wash your hands and then go where they're preparing high-care food. And the last thing that you've done is you've washed your hands and then recontaminated them by putting them into a biofilm chamber, which we call a hand dryer. So what is a biofilm? Strangely enough, it's a rather weak-sounding substance. Um, We know that it contains proteins and polysaccharides and nucleic acids. So you would think that any detergent uh, worth its while is, is rapidly going to remove that. But this is the big, big problem that I'm trying to get into the conscious awareness of technical managers and technical directors all over the UK working in food and beverage and beer production is that conventional chemistry doesn't touch them. Biofilms are resistant to conventional chemistry. So this is how a biofilm first forms. I want you to imagine, and we'll use a brewery um, uh, background for this, Um, and imagine that for whatever reason on this particular day, the CIP program on FV number three has not been totally effective. Uh, for a variety of reasons 
And we've got traces of yeast or beer left um, around an outlet pipe, around a valve, or maybe um, in a fitting uh, inside the FV. You see, cleaning the FV walls is not a particularly difficult task. It's all the fixtures and fittings Mm. on the outside of the FV, which goes inside the FV, uh, probes, um, and and anything else which is allowing maybe a blind spot from the CIP ball spray ball or the CIP spray device. And microorganisms can actually detect minute traces of food, whether it's inorganic or organic. And what we're learning is that they can perceive their environment. So it's not just a random thing that happens. You know, it's not just that there are one day there are some wild yeast floating around, another day they're not. Uh, these are floating around all the time, and it's only due to the due diligence of the brewer to, with, with regard to hygiene that these guys don't have a chance to get a foothold within that fermenter. But on the one day when maybe, for whatever reason, that hygiene program has been shortcut, Maybe he was running out of detergent and it was a low strength. Maybe he was running out of time. He got to fetch the kids from school. So he he just did a quick rinse and left it at that. But on this particular occasion, some beer spoilage organisms or maybe some environmental uh, organism like Pseudomonas, which is found in every brewery because it comes in with a water supply. On this particular occasion, it's perceived these minute traces of food on this particular valve. And it says, yum, yum, this is good for me. And it's not just a single organism, there'll be one or two of them. And within minutes, they start to duplicate. They start to uh, increase in number. And in doing so at the same time, and we're talking with certainly within hours, and some scientists tell us within minutes, they start to produce a naturally produced superglue that we call a biofilm. And the reason I call it a superglue is because it's a metaphor which enables us to understand what a biofilm does. And what this superglue does, what this biofilm does, it sticks the early settlers on that surface to the surface. Mm. Now, if you've ever been to the seaside, and I remember this vividly as a child, we go in the, in the rocks on, on the seashore looking for crabs and little fish that have been trapped after the tide had gone out and there'd be these very pointy shells, white shells on the rocks called limpets and we'd try and remove them and we couldn't <laughs> yeah. because they, they, they got their own super glue and they were jammed onto that surface and no matter how much you tried you couldn't lift them off you could smash them off but we didn't want to do that and this is what happens with the biofilm, it's a superglue. So it sticks those early adopters onto the surface and then they start to build more biofilm. And within that biofilm now, we have got a micro population of organisms into the millions and millions. And within those micro colonies are channels which are engineered. These are creators. These are not just dumb monocellular organisms which are a pain in the neck they are actually endowed with intelligence and they can build a three-dimensional structure and it allows more food to come in whether it's wort or beer or dirty water and they've got their own plumbing system so that waste product can go out and they will stay there 
as long as we let them stay there. Now, what we've got to remember at this stage is that now we've got a mature biofilm, the caustic, the caustic and hypochlorite, the nitric acid phosphoric blend, the peracetic acid is not going to touch it. We now know through work done by Camden, through work done by the National Biofilm Innovation Centre, we now know that these biofilms are resistant to conventional chemistry. Now, that means we've got to approach it a different way. So there's a whole bunch of brewers out there that have got their cleaning regimes down, their processes down, everything looks nice and clean, smells clean, it's all coming up clean on their tests and stuff, but actually there's like an invisible threat that they know nothing of because that's, they're not testing for these biofilms. That That's the best way of... Uh, describing it, I like that, Nick. I'll, I'll have to remember that it is an invisible threat. Um, the good news is we can make the invisible visible. There are a number of products on the market that you can spray onto a biofilm, and by an instant colour change, it will tell you whether you've got a biofilm there so that we know that we need to do something about it. So, how do you clean them off then? Um, there's two ways we can clean them off. We can still use conventional chemistry, but we've got to use some agitation or if you want to be scientific, kinetic energy, or if you want to be down to earth, elbow grease. Right. <laughs> so you get hold of a scrubbing brush, you dismantle that valve, and you scrub it, preferably in a caustic chlorine solution rinse, and store it in peracetic acid before you put it back before mm. the next brew. Um, very often that's not possible. In some of the larger uh, breweries, we may have biofilms lurking in canning machines, uh, we may have them lurking in, in pipework. We may have them actually inside the fermenter on the walls, particularly where we have maybe blind spots that are created by um, temperature probes or level probes or, or any other fitments inside the tank. So what we would recommend for that is the use of what we refer to as enzyme surfactant technology um, and if we look back over the last 30 years, more and more universities around the world are submitting papers on project, projects that they've carried out to show that enzymes, I say miraculously, and, and I use that word uh, accurately because it, it, it's almost a miracle that something like a heavy-duty, nasty, corrosive chemical can't remove biofilms, and yet we can use an enzyme detergent, which we happily use yeah. at home for cleaning the dishes, for cleaning our, uh, our laundry, which are safe to use, safe to the operator. We've got a pH of 7. Um, they're safe to use on all surfaces. So if you've got a canning machine with some kind of questionable components that you can't use caustic or you can't use hypochlorite or acids you can use enzymes enzymes are eco or environmentally friendly and enzymes go down the drain and actually clean the drains right <laughs> and they get to the water treatment plant and actually help the water purification process so these are blends of enzymes and surfactants so if you like it's an enzymatic ferro liquid but it doesn't foam because we don't want it to foam, yeah. we want it to be non-foaming. So by the application of an enzyme through your CIP system occasionally um, to prevent biofilms, and I would suggest once a month, 
on the cold side for every vessel and every pipe run and every piece of packaging equipment, um, I would recommend using an enzyme-based product, uh, usually no more than 50 degrees, that's the optimum temperature. Mm. And the time it takes to remove the biofilm would be about in line with what the CRP program is with conventional chemistry. So between half an hour and an hour, something in that in that in that area. Um, and, and that really is, is, is the simple way to make sure that we don't get the emergence of biofilms, but again, every floor, every drain is going to be coated with biofilms. Let me paint a picture if I may. If you've ever walked across a stream or if you've walked across a ford in the road and you've slipped because of a slimy coating on the mm. road or on those pebbles or on those rocks, that is biofilm. Right. Um, in the human body, we have biofilm on our teeth. The dentists commonly refer to it as plaque. And inside the gut, we have a lining of biofilm which prevents nasty pathogens getting through our intestines into the bloodstream. So biofilms work in a friendly way when we're talking about biofilms within the human body um, and certainly within the ecosystems in, in streams and rivers, uh, biofilms keep the water clean so they're there for a purpose. Um, and unfortunately in food and beverage and beer production, um, they can harbour infection which can cause sour beers which can cause returns which has an impact on the bottom line and can if 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 not addressed quickly with some of the smaller brewers it could put that brewery out of business so uh, i would urge every brewer to have a biofilm identification and elimination program uh within his HACCP file uh and it's used on a regular basis and if he if he doesn't know how to do that again uh, his detergent supplier should be able to give him those recommendations just so I'm clear with, with biofilms then, um, basically it's the, a normal beer spoilage organism like lactic acid, for example, that's, that's, so that, that will, that might attach itself to, um, a bend or, a, you know, a fitting of some description and, and nestling there. And then the biofilm is kind of like the thing it kind of like shields itself with, I guess. And, and that I am right. And that's, that's my right. understanding is right. Yes. Okay. Um, so when a brewer's putting together their regimes for ensuring that they are preventing biofilms growing and, and other spoilage bacteria getting in, um, how regularly should they be doing that and what sort of things should they put in their documentation you know, to ensure that it's being done? Yeah, um, that, that, that's a good question. And, and the good news is that it, it's, it's easy and it's not, it's not expensive. Uh, a number of brewers will use ATP, so you've got a capital cost there, and uh, each test is quite expensive. But one thing about ATP is that you can get false negatives. Uh, we actually did um, uh, uh, some work through through my company, Freedom Hygiene, with a, 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 a meals uh, manufacturer up in up in Yorkshire that was preparing uh, ready meals for the supermarkets, and we actually trialled a biofilm uh, identification product against ATP. And in a number of instances, ATP came across as being negative. In other words, it says this surface is hygienically clean. And we found that the product that we use for 
identifying biofilms said we have a biofilm problem therefore we have a potential infection problem a significant infection problem here and the reason that we get the false negatives with ATP is that when the swab is wiped over a surface that contains biofilm what we're harvesting with that swab is not representative of the population of microorganisms on the surface of the uh, fermenter or the conveyor we're harvesting the inert polymer or biofilm which contains polysaccharides and proteins and nucleic acids which is saying everything is okay so I would encourage uh, every brewer uh, to spend 40 quid and, and that's all they cost these days for a 500 ml bottle that you can spray on you probably get 100 to 200 tests out of each bottle and once you find an area where you have a biofilm that needs to go into your HACCP plan. That is a critical control point mm. that needs to be addressed. Now, how much time is it going to take? Minutes, not hours. It's going to take minutes, and this is just to set it up. Once we've identified the biofilm, as I mentioned earlier, dismantle that part of the plant and scrub it v vigorously in a conventional chemical, or if you want a more thorough job, use an enzyme-based detergent. And just want to make final mention on enzymes in the sense that they do not work in the same way as conventional chemistry. What enzymes do, uh, you may remember from uh, O-level science at school, Nick, I just about remember it, <laughs> uh, that enzymes are catalysts and don't actually take part in the reaction. They stay uh, exactly as they are, so they're always active. They work very, very quickly, and what they do is very clever. They, if if you used to imagine that a biofilm was ice at the at the Arctic Circle, and when the warmer weather comes along, that that iceberg melts, and everything trapped within that ice flows into the Arctic Ocean. Imagine a biofilm to be ice. When the enzyme comes into contact with it, that's the equivalent of the summer sun, it melts or liquefies the biofilm, releasing all the microorganisms that were once well protected, they're now vulnerable. We right. now hit them with the parasitic acid, end of problem. Hmm. Um, well, thanks for being on the show today. Um, I, I mean, I've got so many more questions and I, unfortunately... I don't think we have time for them, but if, if somebody wants to look into the kinds of spoilage bacteria that um, they want to be wary of, like, is, is there any resources you can direct them to so they know what, what various spoilage uh, organisms are and what they do and how to eliminate them? Yeah, yes, Nick. Um, it's well documented on the internet. Uh, just tap in beer spoilage organisms. Uh, there's some, some excellent information. Uh, some of it is quite basic but most effective um, and, and that ranges all the way to the very technical that uh, is there for the uh, microbiologists and the, and, and the research professors. Um, my company Freedom Hygiene are looking at biofilms now extensively throughout the UK. Um, most of the work I'm doing at the moment is, is within the dairy industry and the high care food industry. Uh, we're working closely with Camden BRI and we're working closely with Southampton University, uh, which is home to the National Biofilm Innovation Centre, and what they or, or called NBIC for short. And what the NBIC are doing, it's uh, a, a collection of about 60 universities up and down the UK, each of which 
is specialising in biofilm research. Some will be dealing within healthcare, some within engineering, uh, and some within food, beverage, and brewing. So there's a lot of information out there. Uh, but certainly, if uh, a brewer has any concerns about biofilms and his detergent manufacturer can't give him uh, the answers that he's looking for, uh, I'd be more than happy to help in, in a kind of neutral kind of way. Fantastic. So w- w- one last question then. If, if, there was, if there was one pearl of wisdom that you wanted people to take away from this in regards to cleaning and hygiene, what would it be? If you could just choose one. Uh, it's attitude and what we have to have is a perception perhaps that we are a cleaning company that occasionally brews beer as opposed to we are brewers and we'll get the cleaning done as quickly as we can if we have the time so if we have a great attitude toward hygiene I believe that you've got a very valuable tool not just to keep the place hygienically clean but to shout about that from the rooftops so that when you go to promote your beer, when you're looking for new outlets for your beer, when you're looking for new customers, tell them all about your world-class hygiene programme. And I, I believe that is going to help promote that particular brewer's products. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot 4 podcast today. And a massive thank you to Niche Solutions for organising that interview with Paul Browning, who acts as an independent consultant for Niche. For all your brewery, cleaning and biofilm queries after this episode, I'm sure you got lots of them. Niche can advise you on the use of all their cleaning products. They can organise site visits and staff training days so make sure you make the most of them. And NZ Brew 10 is a super effective way to combat those biofilms uh, used occasionally as part of your regular cleaning regime. So make sure you contact Niche Solutions and go visit them at Stand 99 at BRX. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Four podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at Hot Forward Beers. Until next time, cheers. Hey,